Um, Mike did a good job teaching Genesis 12 last week, right? Amen. And the story of Abraham. And um, what I want to do is kind of pause and back up a little bit and talk about Avram, who will become Avraham later on as his name gets changed, as we'll see. But um, what do we know about Avram so far? If we go to chapter 12, verse 1, so open your Bibles to Genesis 1, 12. What do we know about Avram? Have you guys ever met someone or maybe an older person and you thought, just thought the world of this person, right? Man, this person can do no wrong. They're so wise. They're so gracious. They're so self-controlled. And you get to really the point where you really admire this person. And then inevitably, over some course of time, they do something or they say something that reveals a flaw in their character. And you thought, they were in, you thought they were just perfect, right? You thought the world of them. And then there's a little bit of exposure of a character flaw in their life. And I kind of feel that's, that's how it is with Avram, with me to a certain extent, is I really admire this man, as I do many of the, all the patriarchs and prophets in the Bible, but they all have something in common, is that, that is they all have a character flaw. And we're going to see that most, if not all, of these patriarchs have one character flaw in common, if not, if not more, but definitely one in common. But we know from Genesis 12, verse 1, that Abraham, or Avram, is a man of faith. How do we know that? Because God says, get yourself out of your country and go away from your kinsmen and away from your father's house and go to the land that I'll show you. And does Abraham accept or does he decline that offer? He accepts. Yeah, and that, that would have been... Um, kind of a, a shot in the foot to someone who's waiting for an inheritance of land, of waiting for an inheritance of money and, and cattle and sheep or whatever else was coming to him. He's leaving the protection and the, the legacy of his father's household and going somewhere to a foreign land. It is, it's illogical, right? He's a man of faith. Sometimes faith takes us to, to illogical places. But also he was shown this mystery for the ages, a mystery of the ages. Go to 12.2. 12.2, he says, I will make you, Avram, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you are to be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, why is that a mystery? Like Julia said this morning, what's impossible in Avram's life? Having children is impossible, as it is right now in this part of the story. So as Avram is hearing this, he's thinking, that's mysterious to me because the only way that I can become great, the only way that my name can become great is if I have lots of children. Well, that's kind of spiteful of you to promise that to me, right? I'm unable to have children, and you're going to give me this promise? That's mysterious to me. And then go with me to Ephesians 3 because we're given, Paul gives us the answer to this mystery. Ephesians 3. Paul loves talking about Avram, Avraham. Ephesians 3. Paul says, it's because of this that I, Paul, am a prisoner of Messiah Yeshua on behalf of you Gentiles. I assume that you have heard the work of God and his grace has given me to do for your benefit. And that it was by a revelation that this mysterious plan was made known to me. So what is that mysterious plan? I have already written about it briefly, he says. And if you read what I have written, you will grasp how I understand this mysterious plan concerning the Messiah. In past generations, like Avram's, 
It was not made known to mankind, as the Spirit is now revealing to his emissaries and prophets, that in union with the Messiah and through the good news, the Gentiles are to be joint heirs, a joint body and joint sharers with the Jews in what God has promised. I became a servant of this good news by God's gracious gift, which he gave me through the operation of his power. To me, the least important of God's holy people was given this privilege of announcing to the Gentiles the good news of Messiah's unfathomable riches and of letting everyone see how this mysterious plan is going to work out. This plan kept hidden from the ages by God, the creator of everything, is for the rulers and authorities in heaven to learn through the existence of the, of the ecclesia, the, the community, the called out assembly, how many sided God's wisdom is. This accords with God's age old purpose accomplished in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. In union with him, through his faithfulness, we have boldness and confidence when we approach God. So I ask you not to be discouraged by the troubles I endure on your behalf. It's all for his glory. Now go with me. Paul talks again about this in um, Galatians 3. Go with me to Galatians 3 real quick. He decodes the mystery of the ages. Galatians 3. And starting in verse 7. Galatians 3, 7. He says, Be assured then, that it is those who live by faith and being faithful who are really children of Abraham. Also, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, it says, the scriptures say, foreseeing that God would consider the Gentiles righteous when they live by faith and are being faithful. They, were, they told the good news. So God told the gospel to Abraham in advance by saying that, in connection with you, Abraham, all the Gentiles, all the nations will be blessed. So then, those who rely on trusting and being faithful are blessed along with Abraham as he trusted and was faithful. Do you see how Paul is decoding the mystery of the ages for us? Now it goes on even further. We know that Abraham is a man of doubt, right? Before we get there, let's, let's, let's hover and just sit and, and look at verse 2. Chapter 12, verse 2. He says, I will make you a great nation. I'll get ready to bless or get ready to count. <laughs> I will bless you. That's one. And I will make your name great. You are to be a blessing. That's two. I will bless those. That's three. Who bless you. That's four. And I will curse anyone who curses you. And by you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Bless. It's five times. What's the opposite of a blessing? Curse. curse. Guess how many times the word curse has appeared so far up until this point in scripture? Five times. Five times. Yeah, so go back through Genesis 1. Up until this point, there have been five cursings. Five cursings. So what God is saying here is through your line, Abraham, through your faithfulness, both your physical seed and those who are your spiritual seed, I will undo all that cursing that was brought upon the earth by its sinful nature. You catch that? That's mysterious, but that's God's plan of redemption. It's big, isn't it? Now it goes on where it says, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It uses the Hebrew ver verb, v'nivrahu, v'nivrahu, one of the coolest words in the Bible. V'nivrahu is an actual graft. It's an it's a, it's a, um, agricultural term. It means to, to mix in like, like grafting. And if you go Romans 11, Paul says, we are, 
like wild olive branches. You Gentiles are like wild olive branches being grafted in among the natural tree. And again, he, he loves, Paul loves to look at the story of Abraham and the promises given to Abraham by God and then expound upon those and clarify those for us in his letters. And if you're not familiar with the front of the book and understanding the expectation and all those promises, you're going to totally misunderstand Paul and totally take him out of context and, and misappropriate them and do a lot of theological damage as uh, Peter warned us would happen to people who are unstable, right? But then we know that Avram, unfortunately, is a human, and he is a human that has doubt, doesn't he? Go with, go with me to verse 12. I'm sorry, verse uh, 14, chapter 12, verse 14. When Avram entered Egypt, the Egyptians didn't notice the woman. Uh, they did notice the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh princess saw her and committed her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken up to Pharaoh's house. And he greeted Avraham well for her sake. And he gave him sheep and cattle and female donkeys and male and female servants and camels. But then remember what happened. Avraham lied, didn't he? Avraham told them a lie. And he told his wife to lie on his behalf. Tell them you're just my sister. Why? Because it's about self-preservation. It's about doubting that God has a plan through all of this. I'm doubting that he's going to protect my life. So just, what, half a dozen verses later, 10, ver- ten verses earlier, I'm sorry, ten ver- half a dozen to 10 verses earlier, God makes a promise to Abraham that I will make you great. Five times you will be a blessing. Five times through you, all the cursing of the earth and, and humanity and sinful nature that has brought us will be undone through you, Abraham. And then like 10 verses later, oh, tell them uh, you're my sister so they don't kill me. In other words, wow, look at how much I doubt the creator of the universe and his ability to protect my life. Speak something that's untrue. Wow. So he's a man of doubt, right? But then we also learn that as the story continues to unfold, that Abraham has deep moments of trusting and faithfulness, doesn't he? That are profound that surpass any kind of faith that I might have in my pinky finger. But Abraham, like a lot of these patriarchs and like many of the prophets of the Bible, many of the main characters of the Bible, if not all of them, have that one thing in common. And what is that? At times in their life, they doubt. Don't they? We still do, even though we have. We still do, even though we know the end of the story, don't we? We still do. And what it comes down to, you know, it's like God... He rarely uses someone in a profound way that has it all put together. Did you catch me? It seems like this is the pattern of his moving and his working and his furthering, his plan of redemption, is that he uses human beings that are broken. And I'm sure that if I went around and asked everyone in this room to write down their life story on a piece of paper and to turn it into me next week, and I read them out loud, some of you would be like, oh, no, don't do that. My life is broken, right? My life is full of hiccups and, and mess-ups and dysfunction. But what do we know about the patriarchs and what do we know about the prophets? Were their lives just seamless and perfect? But were they used in mighty ways? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. They were. And I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying that you're like a prophet or you're a patriarch, but what I am saying is God will use to, you despite your dysfunction, despite your brokenness, won't he? And he has a way that he can use you in mighty ways, for sure. 
that is proportionate with your brokenness. Which brings us to Genesis 13. Thank you for letting me do that quick little review there. Genesis 13. We're going to read and, and comment here as we go. It says, Avraham went up from Egypt. And this is the first time we see this where he's going up from Egypt. Even though he's not traveling north per se, he's traveling east and then north. But this is going to be a code word for anytime you're going towards the promised land. Anytime you're going towards what is now Jerusalem, you're going up. You're ascending. Okay, And it's actually using uh, Ya'al from, from the, the verb Allah, which means to go up or to make an offering. It says, he went up from Egypt, he, his wife, and everything he had. And Lot, Lot was with him, and they went into the Negev. And Avraham became wealthy with much cattle, silver, and gold. As he went on his travels from the Negev, which is down in the south. I think I have a map here. Oh, maybe I didn't put it in here. Did I skip the map already? There it is. The Negev is down here. So the Negev is kind of this wilderness area, this desert area. So he's in the south. So it says they, they, um, they travels from the Negev. He came to Beit El, which is just to the west of the Dead Sea there. To the place, Hamakom in Hebrew. Now, anytime you see Hamakom in Hebrew, what should you think of? The temple. The temple. Hamakom is going to develop the place, is going to develop later on as the place of God's dwelling. The place. He went to the place where his tent had been in the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, where he had built first. He had first built the Mizbeach, the altar. And there, Avraham Vaigra. La Adonai, the Shem, the Shem of Adonai, the name of God. Now this is important because the we see this a couple times prior to this in Genesis 4:26 and then Genesis 12:8. Someone calling, where the text says that there he called on the name of God. Um, who has Genesis 4:26? I gave it to somebody. Who has it? Read it nice and loud if you have it. Reader number eleven. There, people began to call on Adonai's name. Who has Genesis 12, 8? You got it? Read nice and loud. From there he moved to the mountain to the east of Bethel and erected his tent. There he built an altar to Adonai and called on the name of Adonai. Mm. Who, has, uh, who has Genesis 21, 33? Read it nice and loud. Who has 2625? Anybody? It is possible I didn't get that. 2625. Is that you, Ian? <laughs> there he built an altar and called on the name of Adonai. He pitched his tent there, and there yet sat servants dug a well. Good. Who has Joel 232? Joel 2.32. Then anyone who asks the Lord for help will be saved, even on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. There will be people who will be saved. Yeah, in some translations are anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Right, that translation is a little bit different. Who has Acts 2? Who has Acts 2.21? Acts 2.21. Anybody got it? Nice and loud. And it shall be that everyone who calls the name of Adonai shall be 
Okay, and they're echoing Joel 2 there. Who has Romans 10.13? Romans 10.13. Yeah, Noah? Okay. Good things are about to happen when someone begins to call in the name of the Lord. Now, this isn't don't don't get hung up on just saying syllables. You know, some like in the sacred name movement they might say, "Well, you got to say syllables or else you're not saved." That's heresy. Don't that's not that's not biblical. Okay? I'm pretty sure Corey Tenboom never called in the syllables of the tetragrammaton, but I better believe me, she's one of the first people I'm going to give a big high five to yeah. when we get into the kingdom. It's not about calling on the syllables. It's about calling on God's character and recognizing that you need his salvation, right? Now, I had, it was purposeful that I had all the youth in this room read those verses, which uh, Sophie got out of it somehow. But all the youth, because I would love to see a generation that calls on the name of the Lord, that recognizes that we cannot do this as human beings. We're flawed. We're broken. We're, this is an unachievable goal to fix ourselves, Right? We need to call on the name of the Lord as a generation. The good things are about to happen when, when we see Abraham calls on the name of the Lord. He does this repeatedly. And it says, Lot, who was traveling with Avram, also had flocks, herds, and tents, but the land could not nasa or support their living together because their possessions were too great for them to remain together. This, they're a wealthy family already. Because they came out of Egypt. Remember, Pharaoh gave them all kinds of treasures and silver and gold. It's kind of like the Passover story. Remember when they, the Israelites were leaving Egypt and what did they do? They plundered the Egyptians. They actually got their back pay for being slaves for all those years. They left wealthy, didn't they? Abraham was kind of a precursor to that. But it says they could not remain together. This is repeated word for word in Genesis 36.6. But it's with some different people. Do you guys know who that is? Flip over Genesis 36.6 real fast. Genesis 36, 6. And you'll see a lot of these themes are often repeated throughout the entire Bible. It says, Genesis 36, 6, Esau took his wives and his sons and daughters, the others in his household, and his cattle and other animals and everything else he owned, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan and went off to a country distant from his brother Yaakov. Verse 7. For their possessions had become too great for them to live together and on the countryside. And they were traveling and it couldn't, it couldn't support, it couldn't nassau so much livestock. So you see that echoed again, but just further on with this family. Verse 7. Moreover, quarreling arose between Avram and Lot's herdsmen. The Canaanites and the Perizzi were living in the land. And Avram said to Lot, please, let's not have any quarreling between me and you or between my herdsmen and yours. Since we're kinsmen. Isn't the whole land there in front of you? Please separate yourself from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Now, Lot is always to me, he kind of symbolizes to me that person, you know, Avram here, we see him communing with God, calling the name of God, building an altar. But do we see Lot doing any of that? Not as much, do we? Lot's like the guy that, um, you know, hey, you're family, so I'm going to go with you, you know, but I, I don't really talk to God like you do. Um, or maybe, maybe he's, like, he's like me. Like, I like to find people who have a close relationship with God more so than I do, who have a better prayer life than I do. And I like to attach myself to them and say, hey, can you help me pray, pray with me on this? But regardless, Lot, Lot isn't as close and in, in, in intimate with God as Avram is, is he? So for him to go away from the land that's promised to his family isn't that big of a deal. He's just deviating from the plan. But to him, that's not, big, that's not a big deal to him. 
because he doesn't see the eternal plan that God has laid out for Avram. And verse 10 says, So Lot looked up, and he saw the whole plain of the Yarden, that it was well watered everywhere. And before Adonai, this is before Adonai destroyed Saddam and Amora. It looked like the garden of the Lord. What's the garden of the Lord? Garden of Eden. So Lot is looking out at these two cities in the plains. And what is he reminded of? The garden. Now, anytime someone is going to try to force their way into the garden, force their way back to the garden, bad things happen, right? You're trying to get around the cherubim that are guarding the garden. You're trying to force your way into the presence. And that's not what you're supposed to do. It's like he's about to seize the fruit. And it says, that it, um, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Soar. Verse 11. So Lot chose all the plain of the Yarden for himself. So Lot traveled which direction? Eastward. And everybody should say, uh-oh. Because eastward is a direction of what? Exile. He's going away from the presence of God. Lot is going into self-induced exile here. And he doesn't even, he doesn't, doesn't even phase him, right? Thus they separate themselves from each other. Verse 12. And it says, Avram Yashav, he dwelt in, he settled in the land of Canaan. And Lot, Yashav, he settled in the Iri, the cities of the plain. And what I always say, anytime you see someone going towards building or in a city, what's about to happen? Bad, Bad things. Bad things are about to happen. Now this word Iri, uh, or ir is a city in Hebrew. And cities are not intrinsically bad. But cities, especially in the biblical narrative, in the biblical text, in the story of the Bible, they represent people becoming less dependent on the land that God has provided and created and more dependent on other people and, and powers that be that control those cities. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it has a very high potential to become a bad thing. Does that make sense? So, um, you know, if, if, uh, if I told you five years ago, if I stood up in front of you and told you that, that uh, a dozen eggs would be pushing around 10 bucks a dozen, <laughs> you'd think I'm crazy, right? Buy some chickens, it's going to pay off, right? You'd think I'm crazy. But it's, cities represent a departure from being self-sufficient and, and getting your hands in dirt, but rather over to this where everything is synthetic, everything is artificial, everything's man-made, and it represents the humanistic dream. We can do this. And actually this word in Hebrew, iri, it actually can be, uh, it also equals and is e just, as, just as easily translated as a place of excitement, excited. Um, if you guys know that song, um, uh, uh, what's the song? Um, uru, uru, agim. Uh, you know that song we sing, um, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, yeah. And that song, Uru, that's the same root word as Iri. It, and Uru means, we translate it as awake or get excited, right? It's a very exciting song, Uru, Uru, you know, awake my brothers. But Iri is like an exciting place, right? I remember when I was in middle school, I didn't really understand at the time, but I was in middle school, I was probably in sixth or seventh grade. And I lived way out uh, in the country, I lived... Um, if you're familiar with Highway 2, I live on Highway 2. And um, I remember I was taking the bus in to uh, this, this school, probably the oldest school building in the state of Florida, Bethlehem High School. It was built in 1929, I think it was. Mm -hmm. 
and I was taking the bus in, and I remember sitting at the lunch table listening to these girls talk, and one of them was um, going out with the boy, <laughs> and she said, uh, yeah, um, you know, Brantley, he's moving to the city, and the city was Bonifay, it was just like a big, <laughs> she's, like, she's like, he's moving to the city, and the other girl, she goes, oh, really? She goes, yeah, you know what happens when boys move to the city? Oh. And I didn't really like, I didn't, what? I'm like, what? You know, I'm like, so, uh, big, big, town of big town of Bonifay. Yeah, he moved to the city. But what she's implying there is that, you know, when you move up to the city, you go to the city school, and the city schools are different than the country schools, you know? And like, there's a lot more stuff going on. This is back before we all had the internet, we all had smartphones. A lot more stuff going on. You have way better infrastructure. You have access to cable TV in the city, you know? And uh, all these other things. He's like, you know, she's worried about her boyfriend moving to the city and, and uh, finding cuter girls in the city or something. It's a place of excitement. But I remember um, another thing, too. Uh, a year and a half ago or so, Noah and I, um, we, there's a little creek that runs behind our house here in Dothan. And uh, we decided it'd be a great idea to see if we can make it to the ocean via that creek. And we spent eight and a half days living out of our boats. We had kayaks. Eight and a half days um, traveling this little body of water, which slowly grew larger and larger and larger, and eventually opened up to the Choctahatchee Bay, and we made it to Grayton Beach eight and a half days later, and lived out of these boats. And we wanted to celebrate all of our hard work uh, and our, to celebrate our achievement. We made it, you know, eight and a half days living on this river and living out of these boats and sleeping on the sandbars out under the stars and not having like, I mean, we were living on like instant mashed potatoes and cup of, cup of ramen and you know, all this nasty food and stuff. And, uh, but we survived, right? And we made it down, to it, you know, and I told Stacy, she's like, well, what do you want to do for dinner to celebrate? She came and picked us up. And I said, let's go to Five Guys. I want, I want like a greasy burger and some fries. Yeah. I want like a good, just a nasty meal, right? And celebrate. Nasty meal. So we, uh, we went to Five Guys there, and we went to Five Guys in Destin. And I'll tell you, after just eight and a half days of being out in, in the Choctahatchee River Basin and, and just under the stars and sleeping on sandbars, we saw, we saw maybe, in eight and a half days, we saw maybe 20 people. It was that sparsely populated. Um, but going into a Five Guys with all the fluorescent lights and the music blaring and just crowded with people there on the beach and I'm like just overly stimulated. I remember I was like, oh, this is weird. I'm just like kind of like overwhelmed by all this stimuli going on around me. I kind of like got grumpy or something and, and uh, or maybe I was just grumpy, I don't know. But it was, ex it was exciting to me, but it was also like, you know, I, I, it was different for me. But, um, and we were driving, one more story, and I'm going to move on. We were driving, um, we left Washington, D.C. Last summer, we went and led worship at David's Tent on the National Mall. Was it last summer? Yeah. And uh, we were driving, we were going to go visit friends north of there. And we thought, you know, it would be cool to go ahead and just um, shoot up to New York City and visit New York City. Because uh, I, I love New York City for about, like, two hours, and i got to get out of there. But I love New York City, but... And I, I, I'd never experienced New York City with my family. And I was like, it'd be cool to go to New York City and, and walk around and ride the subway and do all these different things. And we, we were in Washington, D.C. for, uh, I don't know, four or five days we were there. And Washington, D.C., like that, that few days that we were in Washington, there was like the gay pride parades. Um, there was the Supreme Court decision coming out about Roe v. Wade. There was a lot of excitement in, New, in, in, in Washington, D.C. It was a little bit overwhelming the amount of people that were there. And by the time we actually got in the car, to drive to New York City, we turned around and we were like, well, do you guys wanna, we asked the boys, do you guys wanna go to New York City? 
And Eli goes, no, I just want to go home. <laughs> we're like, okay, yeah, we need to. Let's just go home. We're a little bit overwhelmed by the city. So we just went home. The city is a, is a place of excitement, isn't it? Let's go to verse 14. Well, actually, no, we, we stopped in, um, in verse 12. So it says, Avraham, Avram Yashav, he dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot Yashav in the cities of the plain, setting up his tent toward Ad Saddam, toward Saddam. Now, when I was camping out there on the river with Noah, you know, we make, have you camped on a mountain before? Anybody ever camped on a mountain or nobody has? You should try it sometime. It's awesome. <laughs> so put your tent on the mountainside. Now, when you're, when, you're, when you're setting up your tent, what do you think about, you know, obviously about comfort where you're going to be sleeping, but where's the door going to be, right? And if you're camping with other people, you know, especially like you, you don't want your door just to be like all over the place and let's just face this tree right here. You want your door facing the fire, right? And everybody's kind of like orienting their tent around the fire and around each other's doors of their tents. It's like a little, it becomes a little circle if you've got friends and you're camping out in the tent. Or sometimes maybe you're like, I want my tent to face the sunrise so that when I unzip my tent and I'm drinking my Folgers, I can see the sun coming up over the mountain. You orient, yeah, you orient the door of your tent towards something, and that's what the text is trying to tell us. You orient the door of your tent towards something you are kind of admiring or looking up to or that you're focused on. You catch what's going on there? It's very intentional that the author is saying that he pitched his tent with the door facing Saddam, Sodom. And we've come a long ways to, like, from, from the times of uh, from, uh, Avraham, his uncle, huh? It says, now the men of Sodom were evil. They were ra'im. Ra'im, it uses the plural of evil. They had many evils committing great sins against the Lord. Now, what are these sins? Anybody know what the sins of Sodom are? Well, fortunately, the Bible tells us what they are. Go to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16 and verse 49. Ezekiel 16, 49. God lays it out very clearly what the sins of Sodom are. Ezekiel 16, verses 49 to 50. Now, a lot of people automatically, oh, they were all homosexual. That was the chiefest of sins, right? They're all gay. <laughs> Let's see what God really says about Sodom. Yeah, that's right. e uh, Ezekiel 16, 49. The crimes of your sister Sodom were pride. Uh-oh. Gluttony. Oh, no. She and her daughters were careless and complacent so that they did nothing to help the poor or the needy. They were arrogant, and they committed disgusting acts before me, so that when I saw it, I swept them away. Thank God that Sodom got swept away, right? I mean, he is long-suffering and patient. But we're so quick to say, oh, these are the sins. Maybe, yeah. But the gravest of sins for the fact that they were prideful, arrogant, gluttonous, complacent, and not caring about the needy. I want to stay far away from that as possible, right? Even though it sounds really familiar. So what's happening here is there's an illusion where Lot is trying to get back to the fruit of the garden. 
there's a, uh, what we call a lexical allusion to the garden. Lot is trying to force his way into that, whereas Abraham is staying back, and he's staying in, the, in God's providence. He's saying, no, I'm going to trust. I'm going to stay in this land. It doesn't make a lot of logical sense to me. It's not very rational to do that, but I'm going to trust him. Verse 14. Now, this is key right here, guys. If you haven't paid, if you zoned out the entire time, listen right here because this is a very important message. We're about to see the very tiny little hints at something that is to come. Verse 14, Adonai said to Avram, after Lot had moved away from him, he said, lift up your eyes from the Hamakom, the place you are, to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. Anytime you see God mentioned all the cardinal directions like that. Where you're standing here at the Hamakom, which is a code word for what? The temple. The place of his dwelling, the temple. You're standing at the Makom, the place. Look to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. What should we be thinking? Go to Acts 2.5. Acts 2.5. I want you to think about this as prophetic. Acts 2.5. Where are the events of Acts 2 taking place? In the Makom, in the temple, on the temple mounts, the place of God's dwelling. Acts 2.5. Now there were staying in Yerushalayim. Why? Because it's Pentecost, it's Shavuot. Religious Jews from every nation under heaven. Every nation from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And when they heard the sound, the crowd gathered and they were confused because they heard the believers speaking in their own dialect, their own languages. See, these cardinal directions are a, a, a tiny little hint to harvest of souls, harvest of people coming. Like, you know, you may be familiar with Zechariah 8.23. Zechariah 8.23, I don't have it bookmarked, but you should, you should know this passage. It says, in those days that ten men from every language and from every nation will grab the cloak of one Jew and they will say, take us with you. Because we know that God is with you. Ten men from every nation and from every language. From the east and the south, from the west and the north, right? It's cardinal directions. It's a harvesting of souls. So I want you to think about harvest here. And then it says, let's read on. I will give you this land to you and your descendants, to your seed. Literally, it says in Hebrew, now, we have a problem here because if he's using zarecha, that's, that's, dealing with, that's dealing with his physical seed, his descendants. Does Avram have descendants? No, and he's old too. The clock's ticking. And he says, I will give it to them ad olam. Like even forever. And I will make your zarecha, your seed, as numerous as the specks of the afar. Now, we said this in the prayer. The, the afar on the earth. That's the dust of the earth. What do we say when we said the, the prayer? He raised, um, what is it in English? Uh, he keeps faith with those that sleep in the afar. And we sing that. We go, afar, mika, moka. That's that word, afar. So he says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the specks of the afar on the earth. So that if a person can count the specks of the afar on the earth, then your descendants will be counted. Now, we should, whenever we see the word dust, 
That is a, a little code word, a little hint at something that is to come. Go with me to Daniel 12 too. I'm wearing you guys out today with all these verses, all these bookmarks. Daniel 12 too. Daniel 12 too. It says, at that time, your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book. And many of those who are sleeping in the what? Dust of the earth. You see the same exact phrase spoken to Avram. The dust of the earth will be shaken. And some to everlasting life. And some to everlasting shame and abhorrence. So what is this dust supposed to remind us of? To be a little like hint about the resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. Let's go to, uh, you, you're familiar with this, Ezekiel 37. Turn over to Ezekiel 37. Starting in verse, uh, in verse 10. And many of you guys are, um, are familiar with this. Ezekiel 37. Well, actually, we need to back up to verse 1. I'm not going to do it justice. Ezekiel 37. You guys know this, this, this uh, vision. The hand of Adonai was upon me, and Adonai carried me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He had me pass by all around them. There were so many bones laying in the valley, and they were so dry. What else is dry? Dust. Yeah. And he asked me, human being, can these bones live? And I answered Lord God, Adonai Elohim, only you know that. And then he said to me, well, prophesy over these bones. Say to the dry bones, say to them, dry bones, hear what Adonai has to say. To these, to these bones, Adonai Elohim says, I will make breath enter you and you will live. And I will attach ligaments to you and make your flesh grow again. Cover you with skin and put breath back into you and you will live and you will know that I am Adonai. So I prophesied as ordered. And while I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. It was the bones coming together, each bone in its proper place. As I watched, ligaments grew on them. Flesh appeared and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And next he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, human being. Say to the breath that Adonai Elohim says, come from the four winds. Four cardinal directions, right? And Come from the four winds, breathe, and breathe on these slain so that they can live. So I prophesied as ordered. And the breath came into them, and they were alive, and they amidu. What's the name of the prayer that we pray? Amida. The amida. Yeah. And what is one of the benedictions? That blessed are you who keeps faith those sleep in the dust. Blessed are you who resurrects the dead. They amidu on their feet, a huge army. And there he said to me, human being, these bones are the whole house of Southern Baptists. Oh, didn't say that? Darn, sorry, I messed up. These are the bones of the whole house of who? Israel. Israel. And they are saying, our bones have dried up. Our hope is gone and we are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them that Adonai Elohim says, my people... I will open your graves and I will make you get up out of your graves and I will bring you into the land of Israel and then you will know that I am Adonai when I opened your graves and made you get up out of your graves, my people. I will put my ruach in you and you will be alive again. And then I will place you in your own land 
and you will know that I am Adonai. I have spoken, and I have done it. So let's go back to Genesis now. Maybe this is a little bit deeper for you now. You see these things are all kind of like little hints towards these events that are to come. He says, I will make your descendants as numerous as specks of the dust in the earth so that a person can count the specks of the dust in the earth, then your descendants can be counted. And he says, get up and walk the length of the breadth of the land. Does God know the future? Does God know that he's going to raise Israel up and bring her back to his land? He says, the breadth of the land, because I will give it to you. Now let's go real quick to John 12, 24. John 12, 24. Because Yeshua is aware of this as well. John 12, 24. Yes, indeed, he says, I tell you that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it stays just a seed. But if it dies, it produces a big harvest. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, 35. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 35. Paul says, But someone will ask, In what manner are the dead raised? What sort of body will they have? You foolish people, when you sow a seed, it doesn't come alive unless it first dies. Also, what you sow is not the body that will be, but a bare seed of it, say wheat or something else. Sound familiar? But God gives it the body he intended for it, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all living matter is the same living matter. On the contrary, there is one kind for human beings, another kind for matter for animals, another for birds and for fish. Further, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the beauty of the heavenly body is the one thing while the beauty of the earthly body is something else. The sun has one kind of beauty, the moon has another, and stars another. Indeed, each star has its own kind of individual kind of uh, beauty. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. When the body is sown, it decays. When it is raised, it cannot decay. When sown, it is without dignity. When raised, it will be beautiful. When sown, it is weak. When it is raised, it will be strong. When sown, it is an ordinary body. When raised, it will be a body controlled by the Spirit. What did Ezekiel have to say to the, the, the group of bones that were resurrected? He said, prophesy to the Spirit, and I will put my Spirit in them, and then they will be raised. So they're functioning human beings, but they lacked the Spirit, didn't they? He says, it will be a body controlled by the Ruach, the Spirit. If there is an ordinary human body, there is also a body controlled by the Spirit. In fact, the Scripture says so. Adam, the first man, became the first living human being, but the last Adam has become a life-giving Spirit. Note that the body from the Spirit did not come first, but the ordinary human one. The one from the Spirit comes afterwards. Two more verses. The first man is from the earth, made of what? Dust. There's that word. The second man is from heaven. People born of dust are like the man of dust. And the people born from heaven are like the man from heaven. And just as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, so also we will bear the image of the man from heaven. How many look forward to that day? Amen. That'll be exciting. I don't, I don't care about cities so much being exciting, but that'll be exciting. Right? So let's keep going. Verse 18. Avram moved his tents and came to live by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built a Mizbeach and an altar 
to Adonai. So, Genesis 13, we leave off with Lot and Avram separate. And they are two opposing pictures of someone following in the, the providence and the plan and the will of God. And one kind of striking out in his own and saying, I got this. I'm going to go over here where it seems a little bit exciting. I'm not going to go in the cities. I'm just going to pitch my tent outside them and face my door towards them. I'm just going to dabble in it a little bit. So I've got some, uh, some thoughts here. As sons and daughters of Avram, we share in our spiritual father's character to a certain extent. His highs and his lows, don't we? I heard a, a, a Bible teacher one time say, it's better to trust God when the cupboards are empty than it is to have them full but find yourself outside his will. How many of you have had cupboards empty kind of moments in your life? <laughs> I know I have. Yeah. And let me take a few minutes and get real with you for a second. When I look out across this room and you don't see what I see. About... Seven, eight years ago, Stacy will correct me on the way home, maybe I can give a correction. About seven or eight years ago, I was an elder of a Messianic congregation here in Dothan, Alabama. And simultaneous to that, my father was diagnosed with ALS, which is a terminal illness. But he was six hours south in central Florida. I had a decision to make. Do I stay here or do I move into the house I had rented out two miles away from his house and help him and my mother and be with him in his last days of his life? The exact same time, to make things more interesting, we found out we were pregnant with Micah. At the exact same time, the rabbi and his wife of this congregation were having a deep crisis of faith. What would you do? I prayed and I wept. I sought God's will on this. Because I knew, and I was one of the few people who did know about this crisis of faith. I knew that if they're experiencing that and they're about to dip out, I'm going to be one of the last leaders standing. One of the last shepherds here to try to hold this together. I didn't really want that at the time. My dad was terminally ill six hours away. I was like, I don't know what to do. That was the toughest decision I've had to make in my entire life to this day, was what to do in those days. And I, I ultimately made the decision to move south and to be back with my dad and my mom and spend out, spend the last, um, I don't know, it ended up being about a 16, 18 months with him. But in that course of time, the crisis of faith that was happening in the congregation here in Dothan, Alabama, erupted. And the sheep were scattered. And I found out about it. Having made that decision I made, I felt very guilty. I felt very ashamed. Like I had made the wrong decision. Because I loved the people of the congregation. I loved to see them united, to see them together, to see them worshiping, see them serving together, to... I loved that, and I loved them. And when I heard that that had happened and they scattered, my heart was deeply broken, and I doubted God. And I remember sitting up one night and telling Stacy and actually verbalizing to her, 
I'm done with this. I'm done. My dad is dying. I've prayed. I have fasted multiple days for him to be healed. There's this going on up there in Dothan, Alabama, and those people I loved, and I just don't see the fruit in this. I doubted God so deeply in that time. And I was overwhelmed with anger and resentment. But ultimately, I I, I directed my anger towards the people that had the crisis of faith. I directed my anger towards other things. But ultimately, who was I angry with? I was angry with God. And the moment I realized that, I told him. I told him that. I let him have it. Like Mike said the other night at at the youth night, God can handle your anger. Tell him about it. He'd rather you express his anger to him than you not talk to him at all. Just like a father. Oh, wow, hi, you called me. You're angry with me. At least I hear your voice. At least I know you're okay. I expressed that to him in my deep time of doubt. So when I look out across this room, (laughs) I see something different. Totally different. Because... When Bill Nichols, for those who don't know, he was one of the founders of this congregation, called me when I, after my dad had passed away and invited Stacy and the boys and I to move back up here to help lead this congregation. I was like, I don't know that that's an irrational, that's an illogical move. I would be leaving a really good teaching job at a school that I really like to come up here and uproot everything and to move here and try to pick up the pieces and regather what was scattered. And I just don't know if that's possible. Fortunately, there was about six people, and it's Joanne included, and Mary Shelley, who often helps lead dance up here, is another one. They, they carried on the torch together, and they continued to meet and to fellowship. And people like Howard and Jackie and Todd and Joanne, so many people were still there waiting and, and, and keeping the fire going, so to speak, and fellowshipping with one another and and provoking one another to good works. So when we came here, we, we, I remember our boys on the way up here, they were like, well, who are we going to play with? <laughs> I was like, I don't know, guys. And there was like, I remember sitting at a table, there were six other people at a table when I was speaking that day. And I look at it across this room, and I look at the fact that we're about to have, we could have, we could fill this place for Passover. I see something different than what you see. I see... That through my doubt and despite my doubts, God is faithful. Amen. Right? That he has regathered what was scattered and then some. That he has taken my doubt and he's transformed it to use it for his glory. So like Julia said this morning, and Julia was like spot on in terms of what I was teaching on today, is that God will take your doubt that you are having today, that you're experiencing this past week, if you allow him, he will use it and you for his glory. Because I am a testament to that. What I wanted to do as we close out today, I wanted you to get something to write with and write on. Real quick, if you're willing. This is a good thing to do. Because if you don't keep track of this, you're going to miss out on an opportunity to give God glory and praise for what he's done. I want to just take a few minutes and wrap up today with you making a list of the things that are doubtful in your life. 
that cause you doubt. Things that might be like salvation of a child. It might be favor at my job, or it might be my marriage being on the rocks. Or will I ever be sent the spouse that I feel like you have set apart for me? Or will my children grow up to love the Lord? Will I ever break this stronghold in my life? Those are areas of doubt. And you are in good company if you have those areas. I want you just to take a minute and write down just the things that are causing doubt in your life. If you can do that, if you can think of them. And it could be a small piece of paper like this. And actually, I kind of hope that you lose it. What I want you to do after you write those things down is just hide it somewhere in your Bible. Nowhere in particular, just hide it somewhere. And kind of just lose it. Because one day, you're going to be opening your Bible and that's going to fall out. You know, it might be five or ten years from now. And you're going to look at that piece of paper. And you're going to read those things. And you're going to say, hallelujah. Amen. God is good. I cannot believe I doubted that. But wow, because I did and because I walked through that doubt, I can now give God glory in a deeper way, in a more, a more intense way than I could if I didn't. And not only that, I can find other people that are doubting me. And I can show them God is faithful. I know it's hard right now. Things are tough right now. You're struggling, but he's faithful. Let me prove it to you. So take a moment and write those down. Let me, uh, let me close this in prayer. You can continue writing if you'd like. Father, I thank you for our father in faith, Avraham. And just the fact that your scriptures preserve an imperfect man. A man who experienced emotion and doubt. And a man who sinned and messed up and lied. A man who sought to preserve his own self over trusting in your divine will and providence. May you give us a faith like Avraham as we are his sons and daughters. And may we, like him, grow to trust you despite that doubt and despite our imperfections. You are faithful, and may we learn that more today and in the coming years. We thank you and praise you for Yeshua, who bled and died on our behalf. May everything we do today be expression of gratitude for his sacrifice. And I pray this in his matchless and beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, continue writing if you need to. Hide it in your Bible somewhere. And I want to hear what you have to say a few years from now. Come to me, find me, and say, look at this prayer that was answered.